Hello, everyone, and welcome to this evening's performance. I think that might be the right word for it. <laughs> Stroke book launch. Um, as you'll have seen, there are books outside. So just to note, um, this event forms part of the New World Disorders series. That's a dis in brackets. Held in the run-up to the LSE Festival, which is a week-long series of events taking place from the 25th of February to the 2nd of March 2019. So this is the run-up. Free to attend and open to all, exploring how social science can tackle global issues. And this is absolutely what David does here. Uh, how did we get here? What are the challenges? And importantly, how can we address them? Full program available from January 2019. So this is a taster. So it's my pleasure to welcome David Graeber, um, who probably needs no introduction. He's an American anthropologist and an anarchist activist known for numerous books, especially the one on debt, which he published in 2011, but a whole lot of others, including ones that engage directly with issues of the day. But he's also, in his other life, an anthropologist of Madagascar who, who mm -hmm. works on sort of you know, what anthropologists more classically tend to work on. And um, so it's great to have you here, David. And then I'm also introducing Lydia Hughes. Now, Lydia is, she works at the Industrial Workers Union of Great Britain, right? Mm -hmm. And she, in fact, organizes foster care workers in particular, so very much involved with the type of work that David's talking about. She was involved in the cleaner strike here at LSE and, in fact, did her BA in politics and philosophy um, and, in fact, met David during the occupation. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah, I remember the last book launch we did was in an occupied suite just over there three and a half years ago. So it's that's good to right. be back. Yeah. So she's a perfect interlocutor for, for, t for this evening's. Um, it's going to take the form of a conversation and at the end there will be some time for audience people to ask questions. So, right. over to you, Lydia. Thank you so much. I think we thought we'd start with the basics from the very beginning. Mm. What is a bullshit job? Ah, yes. Um, a bullshit job is a job which is so completely pointless or even pernicious that even the person doing the job secretly believes that it shouldn't exist. Uh, that is to say, you know, if you have a job which you think if this job were to disappear, it would either make no difference at all or the world might be a slightly better place, that's a bullshit job. <laughs> you describe it as a political project, not an economic one, because it makes no sense in economic terms, right? Creating jobs just to keep everyone busy? Well, you know, when I first wrote the essay about it, uh, it did occur to me. And, um, I should point out that the essay I wrote, I believe it was 2000 and 14, um, the original essay, it was, it was kind of a joke. Um, I mean, it was half serious, but it was, it was occasioned by um, this experience I kept having. So, you know, I don't really come from either an academic or even a professional managerial background. Um, so I, I almost consider myself an anthropologist in the academy and the kind of people that you meet if you hang around in, in places like this. So, so I kept finding myself in this experience where I would meet people at parties and, you know, I was trying to understand office workers and what they do. So I'd say, well, oh, so I'm an anthropologist, what do you do? And they'd say, oh, nothing really. Um, <laughs> and, you know, at first I thought, well, you know, they're... they're just being modest. Um, so you give them a few drinks, you sort of ply them, well, what do you really do all day? And often they would 
admit that actually, no, they, they meant it literally. They actually do nothing. Um, they just, you know, update their Facebook profile, design cat memes, and hope the boss doesn't notice. And, um, and either that or they would say, you know, well, I work maybe one or two hours a week, but basically, you know, otherwise I'm just pretending. Um, so I thought, how common is this? Uh, so, so I had to write an article uh, for, well, I didn't have to. I had a friend who was launching a new magazine, and he said, um, do you have anything, you know, lying around, you know, some kind of, something kind of provocative that no one would normally run. Um, give us that. So I thought, okay, you know, I, I've got some drunken party rants that like no one would normally put out, and which one shall I use? And I thought, okay, I'll do this. And uh, so I wrote a piece saying, well, maybe this is the reason that we're not working a 15-hour week, because, you know, famously, um, John Maynard Keynes wrote something about 90 years ago now, uh, saying that around, you know, in 100 years, uh, we'd all be probably working about 15 hours a week. Uh, and I thought about it, and I realized, well, you know, if you look at the kind of work that existed back in the 30s, well, that's kind of happened. The farm jobs have disappeared. A lot of industry has disappeared. Even in Indian China, it's like, you know, it's stayed the same. It's not like there's massive, globally, more people working in industry. There's less. Um, and... So, so what happened? Um, if, and, and I started looking at numbers, and I realized that, that, okay, the number of industry farm services have stayed about the same. You know, there's this myth that it's gone up, but it really hasn't. Um, it's about 20% and has been for 100 years. Uh, what really happened is that, that clerical, administrative, and managerial jobs, in some countries they've gone from 25% to 75% of, uh, of all employment. I thought, okay, so these are the jobs where people are just sitting around doing nothing all day. Uh, so I, I kind of, as, as a provocation, I said, well, maybe they just made up jobs to keep us all working. You know, we, we all had this collective freak out at the prospect of having leisure time. Um, so, so that, well, why would they do that? And I realized, well, you know, think about the 60s when people were relatively secure and relaxed. There was all this unrest. Maybe there was this collective freak out on the part of the ruling classes. And they said, oh, no, we can't have this. You know, people who are happy and have time on their hands, look what they get up to. Um, you know, <laughs> let us introduce precarious labor. Let us, you know, like, like figure out some way to keep them all working. And I wasn't quite sure the mechanisms by which this happened, but I threw that out. That it seems to be awfully political convenient politically convenient uh, for them to do this. Can I ask you a question, David? Yeah. Um, you, you speak here about the bullshitization of the economy. So you, you've yes. obviously expend, extend, extended your analysis beyond just the specific jobs, and yeah. we'll come back to those in yeah. a minute. But, but what's your broader project here with this particular talk? Oh, yeah. In this particular talk, I wanted to go beyond simply bullshit jobs, as in jobs that shouldn't exist at all, according to people who have them, but also the bullshitization of real work, because this is a real problem. The bullshitization is not my term. It was originally invented by French Slate, uh, and, and that's, they actually made up that phrase, the bullshitization of the economy has only just begun, um, in a review of the, the original article. And... I should explain that, that the article just went crazy. You know, it went viral. It got translated into 13 languages in two weeks. I, so I was like, oh, I thought I was just being provocative. I guess this is actually true. Wow. Um, and, and then they started doing surveys, and they found 37 to 40% of people said that if their jobs didn't exist, it would make no difference. So, whoa. I, I thought maybe 15, you know. Was, but but in, on top of that, there's the other phenomena, which other surveys have also revealed. I think they did this of American office workers that said that 39 to 42% of their time 
is actually spent doing their jobs. So, you know, at least 50% of their time is spent either on useless meetings, useless paperwork, emails, uh, stupid administrative tasks, nothing at all, pretending to work. And, and so, you know, people spend less and less time. In fact, they said that it had, incre- uh, it had gone down from 42% to 39% just in the one year they'd done the survey, which must be some kind of statistical anomaly, because at that rate, you know, within 30 years, nobody's going to be doing anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, nonetheless, uh, yeah, so, so, so one of my hypotheses is that there is actually a structural link between the creation of meaningless positions and um, the growth of, of constant, like, pointless tasks for people who are doing real jobs. Uh, a good example of, my, this, of this is schools in America, or everywhere, really, um, but um, hospital administration. Essentially, the way it works, the mechanism, is that you know, it has to do with running everything like a corporation. You know, if you're going to run a hospital or a university like a corporation, that means that administrators have to feel they're executives. So if you're going to hire, like, a new vice chancellor, you're going to hire, like, a new big shot in, um, in, in the NHS or something, they just automatically, not only they give them a six-figure income, but they give them four or five assistants because you're not an important person unless you have a bunch of flunkies, right? Um, but But... They hire the flunkies first, and then they decide what those guys are going to do. Uh, so you end up with these people basically trying to figure out what to do to fill their time. And a couple people actually wrote to me who were in this position. They were like deans and things like that, who explained you know, the task of having to figure out something for these assistants of theirs to do. Um, so what they do is they make up work for the people doing the real work. So like nurses suddenly have to spend half their time doing paperwork. Uh, people have to do time allocation studies and you know, teaching outcome surveys and so forth and so on that they never used to have to do before. So that's why you have this bizarre phenomenon whereby the more administrators you have, especially higher level administrators, you know, you think the less work that of a paperwork that like the the actual frontline staff would have to do, but actually it's the other way around. They have to do more and more. Um, so, so there's a structural link between you know, the creation of pointless positions and then the bullshitization of real work to justify those pointless positions. Yeah. Great. And what I notice uh, from reading your book is that you're definitely talking more about white-collar jobs than you are about oh, yeah. blue-collar jobs. Because what you're saying is that blue-collar jobs, although they might be uh, on the decrease in, in some cases because various people, you know, the union's power has been smashed, etc., those people still feel as if there's some value to what they do, even though maybe they're underpaid, etc. But what you're specifically talking about here is these kind of administrative-type jobs, mm-hmm. which apparently, even to those doing them, have no value. And then you also talk, talk about this rage that people have who, who are doing a bullshit job and maybe feel that somebody else isn't doing a bullshit oh, job, yeah. and therefore this kind of this seething resentment. Yeah, which explains some of the bullshitization. It's like the revenge of the bullshit classes. Um, but I just made that up. Um, but um, yeah, you know, I, I actually make a distinction in the book between bullshit jobs and shit jobs, um, which are just bad jobs, right? Um, and and well, often people think that's what I'm talking about. But but a shit job is just you know a job you wouldn't want to have. It pays badly. It's hard. It's dangerous. It's unhealthy. It's you don't get treated with respect. You don't get appreciated. And and um, jobs like that are often really useful. Well, in fact, you know you can compare like like. Uh, 
oh, a financial consultant with a cleaner in the building where the financial consultant works. You know, financial consultant gets paid a lot, gets treated like a big shot, but it's not clear. You know, if they were to vanish yesterday. Would anybody even know? You know. Um, on the other hand, you know, the cleaner disappears. Everybody's going to know, and the cleaner knows that. But on the other hand, they're using, working with toxic solvents. So they don't get, you know, like uh, sick time if they get sick from it, and you know, it's it's, it's really oppressive job. But at least they know and are keenly aware that they're doing something that's really useful. Uh, there's a famous example that Rutger Bregman uses. Uh, Apparently, at some point, I think it was the same year, 74, 75, there was a two strikes. There was a, 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 a garbage strike in New York City, and there was a banking strike in, in Ireland. And in the case of New York City, within 11 days, the government basically had to give in to all their demands because the city became totally uninhabitable. Uh, so so the, clearly, this is a job, which is, you know, it's a shit job, but, but it's, it's really useful. If they're not there, it's going to make a big difference. The banking strike, they thought they would bring the country to its knees, you know, but um, after six months, they had to call off the strike because nobody cared. <laughs> you know, people just wrote checks to each other, and the checks circulated as if they were money, and there, they created a new financial system overnight. <laughs> uh, that really uh, rings a bell with me, the whole idea of a, a shit job. You know, at least they know they have some power mm. in the job because it's incredibly useful. Mm. We found the same when organizing the cleaners at LSE. They all knew how integral they were to the LSE community. And that's where lots of the uh, kind of upset and rebellion came from, knowing that you're so important but so undervalued. Um, so maybe that's a good place to talk about resistance with bullshit yeah. jobs. I mean, you're quite negative in the book about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we call, it's like clearly these people with bullshit jobs can't seize the bullshit job just in this old Fordist way of talking about struggle. Mm. Um, so what do people with bullshit jobs do? Yeah, like we well, organize people with bullshit jobs. That's a tough one, right? Um, I mean, they could demand real work. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, there's an obvious danger, right? If you go out with a sign saying, you know, I've got a bullshit job, I protest, the obvious response is, okay, you're fired. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, like the whole point of, of, of union organizing is that you are necessary in some way. You know, if you throw a cog in the machinery, I mean, you could just, like, figure out ways to use all that free time you have to sabotage stuff. I, I'm not recommending that necessarily. Um, but, um, you know, but, but that's about, and I do know people who've like become online labor organizers using the time that they're supposed to be working, but nobody actually gives them any work. Or, um, but it's, it's tough. I think the point of resistance really comes with the, the point of bullshitization. And, and this is something that's very interesting. And I, I actually, um, I had to give a talk at the Bank of England. This is one of the two terrifying things I had to do last year. Um, the other one was a talk at the Collège de France. Uh, but the uh, Bank of England wanted me to give a macroeconomic seminar. Uh, so, okay. Um, and I ended up giving a talk uh, called The Macroeconomic Consequences of Useless Employment. Um, and um, I, I looked up some of the concepts. Well, I, I, I kind of pursued some of the concepts I... I, I broached in the book, um, which were, well, one of them has to do with the fact that, that essentially the more your work benefits other people, and more obviously your work benefits other people, the less they pay you. Uh, this is a general rule. But, but the other one has to do with the relation of digitization on 
the differential effects of digitization, automation, robotization, however you want to term it, on different types of, of labor. And this has, I think, really important implications for organizing and for labor struggle. And, and um, in this way, I think this is what I found is really relevant. Um, what, what I discovered was that you know, we all talk about robots replacing jobs. And, you know, one of the premises of my books is all this, oh, no, the robots are coming to replace our jobs, uh, is, is a little bit silly because the robots have already replaced a lot of our jobs, uh, and they just make up stupid new ones where you're not doing anything to, to keep us busy. So it doesn't really So the panic of mass unemployment, I think, is misplaced. Uh, anyway, why is that a problem? Um, but that's another matter. I mean, it just strikes me that, like, if there's ever been proof that we don't have an efficient economic system, it's that the prospect of unpleasant work being eliminated is a problem. <laughs> I mean, isn't this what we were waiting for for 100 years? Is like they're finally going to get computers, machines good enough that we don't have to do unpleasant work? And we, we, somehow we figure market capitalism cannot possibly redistribute the remaining work in such a way that everybody gets a little and everybody gets enough of the resulting bounty to, to have a pleasant life. Well, if that, that's not a really hard problem to solve or shouldn't be. And if our economic system can't solve that problem, why are they saying it's efficient? I thought capitalism was supposed to be efficient. But that, that's a side rant. Um, the, main, the main point has to do with the, two, the differential effects of computers on, on um, manufacturing and um, and on what I would call the caring sector. If you imagine a continuum, so you have like industry, manufacturing on one side, and you have education, health, but anything involving taking care of other people on the other. Uh, well, you know what feminists talk about as caring labor. Um, you know, the more you're on one side, the more robots are going to help. Uh, so, so you robotize man making cars or even sorting fruit, yes, it will become much more productive. And um, the raise of productivity means you'll need less workers. The workers you do have will be paid more, actually. Wages are kind of going up, but there's a, so many, a few people, it doesn't matter. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and thus you have ma massive like, increase of wealth going and profits going to that sector. In health and education, and I actually managed to get numbers for this. You can get them from the Federal Reserve numbers in the U.S. Um, and it, it helps because it's very clear because it's a private, all private sector. Um, in health and education, productivity is going down. It's not going up. And that makes sense because if you're, you know, caring for other people is inherently qualitative. And, and what you have to do is in order to have automate anything or computerize or digitize it, you have to translate essentially qualitative outcomes into something that a computer can understand. Computers can't do that, only humans can do that. So that's how humans have to spend more and more of their time writing, you know, teaching outcome, you know, uh, assessments and, 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 you know, coming up with like ways to make your, your reading lists comparable to other reading lists so you can put them in the same uh, database and all this other stuff, which takes, you know, half your time so you're not actually teaching. Or if you're a nurse, you're not actually nursing or, you know, whatever you might be doing. Uh, if you're a midwife, I mean, like, it's incredible all the different people who end up having to fill out forms all the time. And, and, and thus productivity goes down. And sure enough, that's what happens. Productivity in health and education is going down. And as a result, you have to have more people working in that sector to have the same outcomes. And pro the huge pressure on profits, so they start trying to pay them less. As a result, what do we see? All over the world, you 
have teacher strikes, you have nurses strikes, you have doctors strikes here, junior doctors, right? You had professors last year. Um, you have uh, care home workers uh, in France for the first time ever were on strike a couple of years ago. So this is happening all over the world. Wherever I go, they say, yeah, that's what's happening here. Um, and so I call this re the revolt of the caring classes because as you, as you computerize, as robots replace more and more types of labor, first of all, we have to think of like what types of labor we don't want to computerize anyway, even if we could, and, and, and the fact that those things are way undervalued and are under enormous pressure now. So, um, that was a long answer. You're, you're, an <laughs> you're an anthropologist of value, among other things, and there's a lot of evaluative statements in your book. And I find myself at certain moments, although you say you're mainly basing your book on people who are quite aware that they're doing a bullshit job yeah. and therefore themselves are undervaluing their job, I did sometimes find myself wondering whether um, you were sort of like making people feel bad about the job they were doing. And I specifically know a, a, a certain person um, who's a friend of mine who has had a flatmate who actually quit his job because he'd read your book. <laughs> So I was wondering, so what, what, it connects to your question there, sort of what is the kind of, what's, what's the impact, next step? Right? It's impact, that. yeah, but, but, but what's the next step? Can you, can you and should you be thinking of, of, you know, have you conscientized a whole lot of people only to fail to give them the next step they should take? But I also wondered about people maybe, like my own informants in South Africa, you know, the previous generation all did blue-collar work. Mm -hmm. Now then, the next generation is doing white-collar work. And I'm, I have a feeling they might not have quite got to the point where they think this is a bullshit job because they still feel like they're better off than their fathers were. So is this going to be culturally specific? Um, does it have something to do with whether you've just climbed up the sort of, you know, the pole of, of social advancement and therefore you're going to be thinking more of your bullshit job than maybe somebody might do somewhere else? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it would be very interesting to look at it internationally. Um, I, one of the ways I gathered uh, material is I simply put out on, on Twitter, I think I have like 75,000 followers or something like that, just like, have you ever had a really pointless job, you know? Tell me all about it. And, and I just solicited narratives um, just to get a sense of what these jobs actually were like. Uh, and, and, and also, like... You know, a lot of questions like, well, does, does your supervisor know that you're not doing anything? Like, um, you know, how do you think this happened? Why does no one notice? You know, the, um, just to get a sense of the social dynamics that lie behind it. How does it make you feel? What is it like? Do, do your coworkers, you talk about it with your coworkers? Do you just, like, all have awkward silences? Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that really struck me was the amazing psychological effects of this had. Because so many people talked about depression, psychosomatic illness, anxiety, terrible workplace relations. Like, they would say that when we're doing something, you know, when you're working on something where you actually know why you're doing it, um, people treat each other in a fairly you know, civil way, or even there's a sense of teamwork. But the moment everybody secretly knows there's like no point at all to what you're doing, people just take it out on each other in these terrible ways. You get this strange sadomasochistic work dynamics and just people like bullying and harassing them. But anyway, um, that's a little off the point. Um, but, but these, these um, accounts came from all over the world, but they were very much concentrated in Europe and North America. Um, I did get a bunch from India, Brazil, um, some from the Middle East, and they weren't that different. I mean, a lot of the ones there were people like engineers and people who'd kind of been trained to think, I'm going to, like, you know, add to, like, you know, build this new shining new 
technologically advanced nation. And like, there's one guy in Egypt that really stuck with me. That um, you know, he's really in, kind of. I am from the Arab Spring generation. We're all trained to think that we're going to be taking on these technical problems and bringing our our, our country into the future. And then he gets this job where. Basically, he realizes he's there in case the air conditioners break. <laughs> and, but they wouldn't admit that, right? Because it's a very common cause of bullshit jobs. I can talk about how these things happen and the immediate effect. Um, because the political question is just why this is allowed to happen, like why it actually happens is internal dynamics. But one of them is, is uh, you know, this incredible re- resistance against being able to admit, like, we just have you in case the air conditioners break, uh, Stay out of other people's way. Don't be too far from the building. You know, otherwise, you know, it's up to you. Nobody ever says that. They'll they'll make up things for you to do, uh, because it's considered wrong somehow that you should receive a regular salary and not be doing something. So they make up these strange rituals of moving around and checking things and do, and and you know he'd figured out the ones you had to do and ha- didn't and 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 managed to get some time for himself. But it was just so demoralizing uh, for him that you know he found. He couldn't think about science and engineering anymore. He became a film buff and started doing secret film criticism on the internet. But this is like a common thing. Um, an interesting question of repurposing time. When you say, like, what can people do with this? That's um, it's very, very interesting to see that some people manage to repurpose their time very effectively. But it's quite unusual. And obviously, a lot of it has to do with the degree of supervision. Uh, but a lot of it, too, has to do with psychological stuff that I don't completely understand. These people would say that, like, when you're doing a real job, but you have, like, occasional time off, you can actually do something useful in it much more easily than if you have a phony job where you have all day, in theory, but you have to be pretending to work. It's somehow just like, it, it creates a psychological situation where it's really hard to repurpose. So one thing I would say is don't quit your bullshit job, you know, just use your time to do something else. And you wonder why that, well, why not just learn Swedish or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got all this time. And, and people say this is surprisingly difficult. Or become an expert Spinoza. That was uh, well, one of that, my favorite yes. parts of the book. You might have to explain that. Yeah, um, this is like a classic government job. There was this, uh, I start the book with these two case studies. Um, uh, one is this guy who's a, a subcontractor to a subcontractor to a subcontractor to the German military. Uh, and his job is of a German military officer needs to move his computer from one office to the other. They have to call, I don't know, IT, who have to call HR, who have to call something else. And eventually he has to rent a car and drive like 300 kilometers or to wherever the base is and put it in a box so someone else can move it. And, um, and um, this is what happens with privatization. Um, I remember thinking like, wow, I mean, you know, for the German military, they thought this would make it more efficient. Um, you know, German military has been accused of many things over the years, but inefficiency is rarely one of them. <laughs> Yet, nonetheless, yeah. but, but the Spinoza example is the other side of that, um, the sort of classic government job. Uh, this guy this was in the newspapers a few years ago uh, in Spain. There was an engineer who, uh, apparently the mayor of the city he was working with, he's in the, with the water board, um, was about to give him an award for 25 years of, of, of long service to this city and went to find him. And everybody said, oh, that guy, um, I think he works at the board. And the board was like, no, I think he works at the city. And everybody realized that nobody had seen him for six years um, <laughs> or noticed. Um, and um, so they tracked him down. And it turned out that... Um, um, 
he had like basically hadn't shown up to work for six years uh, and had been studying Spinoza. Um, <laughs> but he had a very good reason. He said like, well, his boss didn't like him and wouldn't give him any work. Um, he was a water sanitation engineer, and he said, well, you know, and he became really depressed just sitting there pretending to work all day. He had nothing to do, so he went to a he got to went went to a shrink, and he said, oh, I told I don't know what to do with myself. I have this problem. And the shrink said, well, what do you really love? He said, I've always been fascinated by, by 16, uh, 17th century philosophy and particularly the works of Spinoza. And said, well, why don't you just become a Spinoza scholar? No one will notice. Um, so, <laughs> so he did, yeah. Amazing. And apparently like, people realize that you know, they, they basically accepted his excuse because um, I think they docked him one year's pay, but he got to keep five. Right. (laughs) You touched briefly on outsourcing, so in the German military being outsourced by three layers. Um, This is something that struck me while reading the book. Uh, We've just started organizing electricians at IWGB, and I also talked to a friend the other day who's a teaching assistant, and they both told me exactly the same thing, that they're employed by an agency who's then, there's an umbrella company, but then also if you want to get paid, you have to give someone 20 pounds just to get paid, a mm. whole different company. And there seems to be a correlation between the rise of outsourcing and the rise of bullshit jobs. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this sort of internal, and the introduction of internal competition within bureaucratic structures, in corporate bureaucracies, you know, which is supposed to make it more efficient, has the exact opposite effect. Um, these like sort of layers and layers of outsourcing, you know, create completely unnecessary positions. And the thing is, you know, I was called a conspiracy theorist for saying this is convenient to people in power, but people in power do promote this, and they also recognize that, well, at least it creates employment. I mean, they'll say this. Um, My favorite example was, um, I I dug it up and I was, aha, smoking gun, Uh, an interview of Obama where he was talking about health care reform. And and he said, everybody says single payer will be more efficient, and, you know, I suppose that's true, but... You know, America, we have like 400 different private healthcare companies. Sure, that's reduplication of effort, but if we had an efficient system, what would that mean? Two, one million, two million, three million people who actually work for, you know, have these unnecessary reduplicated jobs owing to our inefficient private healthcare system. What are we going to do with those guys? They're all going to be unemployed, you know? So he basically admitted we want, you know, sure, socialism is more efficient, but like all this marketization creates unnecessary jobs, and that's good. I mean, we don't want to get rid of those. Um, yeah, I mean, they never think that way about blue collar jobs, right? There you have to ruthlessly downsize. But the white collar jobs is just completely the opposite. The more fat, the better. Um, which is why I really think of it as like a partly a, a redistributive me- mechanism. And, and that comes, too, from, I think, trickle-down economics is, I think, really a part of this. Because if you think about it, there's huge political pressure from both the left and the right to always create more jobs, more jobs. You know, the one thing that left and right agree on is more jobs is always good. As I always say, you know, every time there's a march against something, the one thing they're for is jobs. You know, money for jobs, not for prisons. Money for jobs, not for war. Money for uh, whatever it is. Um, jobs are good. And meanwhile, you have these guys demanding jobs marching down the street. There's some right-wing guy saying, yeah, a bunch of hippies, get a job. So, you know, everybody agrees that jobs are good. <laughs> um, and, but the difference between left and right is largely mainstream left and right is how you create those jobs. So the traditional social democratic way is you stimulate aggregate demand, as the Keynesians like to say. You give more money to, be, to consumers, and you know if they're 
poor, they'll buy food or shoes. Or, you know, if they're, if they're middle class, they'll put in a swimming pool. But either way, you're employing people. Employers will then hire people to provide them with, with what, they, what they want. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a cold. Um, but, um, you know, the right-wing solution is, no, just rich people are job creators. That's the phrase they're always using in America. Just give them money, give them a tax cut, redistribute more money upwards, and they will just create jobs. But, you know, if, if I'm a rich guy and I just got a huge tax cut, and they start saying, well, how many jobs are you going to create? Which they do regularly. Well, what am I going to do? Because I'm not going to hire more people to make stuff and sell people stuff if you have an increased aggregate demand and there's no more people to buy it. So, so the only thing you can really do is, well, I'll hire more flunkies. and you know, I'll set up a corporate magazine to talk about how great I am. Or, you know, or I'll, I'll, I'll create an inefficient down, outsourcing way. You know, basically, like, these are ways that you create jobs and, and, and that makes you look good because you're under political pressure to do so. So, so, yeah. And I've never heard of a trade union advocating for getting rid of a job that pays their dues. So, Whether or not yeah. it turns out to do anything, yeah. <laughs> sure. So what is the kind of political vehicle that we deal with this? I mean, one of the things you bring up in the book is universal basic income. I do, yeah. Even though you're very clear that that's not what the book is about. Um, but maybe you could say a bit more about how it can be a solution. Yeah. Um, I think that... Well, I thought it was relevant to enter into the universal basic income debate because one of the themes of the book is about the culture of work. Why is it we accept this? Because, you know, it's, I, in, in a way, my conspiracy theory is not, it's not like an anti-conspiracy theory. I, uh, it's not like anybody sitting in a room saying, ah, we will create bullshit jobs. But, like, these things happen of their own of their own, because internal dynamics of large organizations, they'll always create fat, you know, things like this will happen. But the question is, why doesn't anybody do anything about it? Why doesn't, you know, why does Obama say, yes, we need to keep those jobs? Um, because it's politically co convenient. Um, but there's also a moral dimension. People actually feel that it's better that people be working even if there's nothing to do. Um, and, and you get people making this argument sometimes quite flagrantly, you know. I remember talking to somebody, I won't mention any names, as a sort of a liberal economist. Um, and he's a very left-of-center guy. He's saying, well, you know, we don't want to, like, introduce too much leisure. I mean, you know, like, if you just had people working 15 hours a week, like, or lots of people not working at all because you have basic income, well, you know, crime levels are going to go up and, and drug addiction, alcoholism will probably go up and people have too much time on their hands, you know, and you don't know what they'll be getting about. And we think, well, if these jobs are unnecessary and we're, like, in keeping them there, forcing people to take them uh, just so they'll keep working, like, gee, like, why don't we just put people in prison for eight hours a day? <laughs> then, you know, that'll keep alcoholism and crime down. You know? I mean, it's about the same thing. And, and so, so people really do think it's better people to be working even if there's nothing to do. They, they admit it sometimes. Uh, but but um, so I think that for me, the whole, the I, I go into, there's no time for it now, in the book, the, the theology of work, how work becomes this thing which is, like, important in itself. You should be suffering. Um, and this goes way back in our tradition, way much earlier than Puritanism. This idea that like we need to work as a sort of secular hair shirt. You need to suffer, and anything that makes that suffering less makes it less validating. Um, and and in fact, even to the point where. If you get pleasure from the fact that you know your job is actually useful in some way, um, that actually makes it less value. You should be paid less rather than more. And again, people will make that argument. You know, people will actually say, like, well, you don't want um, 
people who are just interested in money teaching our children, we can't pay teachers too much because then you'll get greedy people taking care of our kids. You never hear, like, we can't pay bankers too much because then you'll get greedy people taking care of our money. <laughs> Although you'd think that that would be a much bigger threat, right? Um, anyway, uh, but, but in terms of basic income. So, so I think that, like, what I think of basic income is, is a way of separating, like, work and, and livelihood. People should be guaranteed a livelihood, absolutely unconditionally, and then on top of that, you know, decide how they want to contribute to the world. I would call that economic freedom. Um, you know, economic freedom isn't like the right to sell yourself as a slavery in a, into slavery in any way you want, uh, or rent yourself. It's 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 the it should be like to decide for yourself how you want to contribute, and uh, because you have a certain degree of security. And uh, but but the. The reason I think it was important to emphasize in a book on bullshit jobs is because the two most common objections to separating livelihood from, from work, I think the existence of bullshit jobs and the fact that people are so unhappy in bullshit jobs actually itself provides um, a, a very strong counter-argument. Because what people will say, first of all, is, well, if you just give people enough money to live, you know, everybody unconditionally, a lot of people aren't going to work. They're just going to sit around. Um, and, I, you know, we, we're all taught this, that everybody's lazy, that, you know, uh, we're all maximizing individuals who want something for nothing or, you know, the most reward for the least effort. That's what economics is based on. But, of course, if that were true, people in bullshit jobs would be happy as clams, right, because they're getting something for nothing. Often these guys are doing nothing at all all day, and they're paid pretty good money, you know, and treated well. So why are they so unhappy? I think this shows that people really want to think they're, they're actually doing something with their life. Um, so, so that argument, I think, is pretty much refuted by, by this phenomena. But even more importantly, the second argument is, well, if you left it up to people, you said, you are free to decide for yourself how you want to contribute to society that a lot of people would do something stupid. Um, and, you know, that's probably true, but you know, the image is, well, the world will fill up with like millions and millions of bad poets and like annoying street mimes and you know, annoying street musicians, and then you'd get like uh, crazy crank scientists of hollow earth theories or perpetual motion devices, and you know, and, and, and there'll be a drag on the economy. This is completely silly. Well, you know, maybe there will be a certain degree of that, I, I will admit. But first of all, if 37% of people already think they're doing nothing all day, how are you going to have a, a stupider division of labor than we already have, right? And, and, and second of all, like, you know, even if these guys are doing something that isn't useful, at least they'll be happier. It's not going to be 37%. They'll be doing something they like, you know? So having people generally happier in the world will, will, will itself get rid of a lot of social problems. And third of all, like, all you need is, like, one of those musicians to actually be Miles Davis or John Lennon or something like that. All you need is one of those guys to actually invent a perpetual motion device or a teleportation device or something. You know, you got your money back right there. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you've definitely touched a nerve in the world in general, David, and, yeah. and many other places, and probably even in this room. So we're going to have some time for questions. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of them um, so I'll, I'll gather questions in groups of three, and then you can give us some answers. There's one right up there, and one over there, and one over there. Okay, yes? I think there's a microphone coming around. How are we going to do it, one at a time or two? I think we we'll make three. Three, three. Well, three, three at a time. time. Okay. That's okay. Thanks. So I should Thank take you. close attention. Yeah. Um, on the point of a universal basic income, which is necessarily a sort of centralised state-funded mm -hmm. thing, 
at mm. least to my recon- recognition. To, to speak a bit more into the mic. Sorry, okay, start again. On a universal, universal basic income, which is necessarily something doled out by the state, I would have mm-hmm. presumed, how does that reconcile with your anarchist tendencies? Okay, that's easy. Um, next one. <laughs> We're supposed to do three. Yeah, <laughs> I will answer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the next question okay. up there, please. UBI anarchism question. Right. <laughs> next. <laughs> Hi, thank you. I wanted to go back to your def- uh, your kind of uh, definitions at the beginning, the differences between bullshit jobs and shit jobs, yeah. and how, I mean, th- there should be no overlap between the two, but I-, I work very closely with the ILO on the uh, Global Initiative for Decent Jobs for Youth, but they're really terrible at defining what decent jobs are, and is there some way that I can better define it to kind of cover both bullshit jobs and shit jobs and make them both better? Ah, okay, well, okay. Right, okay, and the final, I think there's one down here, please. Um, do you think moving to uh, a dimension where measuring the output of services will continue the Growth of bullshit jobs. Me- yeah. Oh, do we? Do I think we'll move into a dimension where measuring the output of services will increase? Uh, well, yeah, will increase bullshit jobs. And do you think, I think we're in that now? Yeah. Well, and do you think bullshit jobs are inevitable? Ah, okay. Okay, uh, okay so there you go. One at a time. All right, All so right. David will answer um, The UBI anarchism question. Uh, obviously, anar- you know, UBI is not my ultimate utopia. You know, it's, it's a transitional demand. Um, but I think it's a re- – but the reason why I think that a UBI argument would be actually uh, consistent with a, a general libertarian, socialist, or anarchist approach is because it would massive, not only would it massively increase the size of government bureaucracy, it would also massively increase the, un, the least pleasant and most obnoxious part of government bureaucracy, the part which is actually you know, surveilling and monitoring you. Like, um, the one, way I put it sometimes, you know, like we have, in terms of bullshit jobs, we have millions and millions of bullshit jobs in private bureaucracies, which are basically there so that rich people can feel good about themselves. In a similar way, we have increasingly massive numbers of, of bullshit jobs in, pro- in public bureaucracies, which are basically there so that poor people can feel bad about themselves. Um, and, and essentially, there's enormous numbers of people who are just there to see if you're looking hard enough for a job, to see if you're really married to that person, to like see if you're really using that room, you know, who are basically making your life a living hell. And, and those guys are the guys who would disappear with UBI. Um, so, so it would actually shrink not only the, the size of government, which is not really important, but the power of government, uh, and the power of government directly intervene in people's lives. Uh, and at, at the same time, you know, like one of the things that really struck me in, in the accounts I got, I got a lot of accounts from people who work in these jobs, and they're miserable. I mean, all these guys who are there to, like, turn people out of the homeless shelter if they don't have two forms of ID, you know, the, you know when you say, how can those people live with themselves? Often they can't. You know, they're just sitting there saying, oh, my God, this is horrible. And, and those guys could all, you know, go and get UBI, too, and form a klezmer band. And, you know, <laughs> and the world will be better off. So, so I think that, you know, 
it, it, it would be handled by the government, but it's also something that would actually decrease the size and power of the government, and particularly the parts of it which are the most directly harmful. Um, you know, it's not a be-all and end-all, but it would also put people in much more power to do something. You know, people suddenly have time on their hands, the number of people who can will be free to like do activist stuff and, and, and to campaign for more radical reforms will massively increase. Uh, the relation of the power relation between proletariat and bourgeoisie will massively change. Uh, so, so it'll have other changes which will allow for much more radical changes in the future, I, I think. Okay, so question two. Dece well, the decent jobs uh, and whether yeah, um, shit jobs and bullshit. Yeah, uh, well, I mean... I think that, you know, in terms of getting rid of bullshit jobs, uh, you know, if you can't do a radical solution like UBI, you know, the clear thing that you need is, is, is to make reasonable jobs not shit anymore, you know. Uh, this, this weird thing where, like, the more social value your work is, people feel that they're creating and the less you're being paid, which really holds almost, I mean, there's economists who, who've, who've looked into this, and obviously it's notoriously subjective, but insofar as they have come up with measures that seem to work, that it tends to confirm this. You know, there's a few exceptions, like that everybody always talks about, like, um, well, doctors, right? Doctors are pretty well paid, and surgeons and people like that are doing uh, clinicians are doing useful work, no doubt about it. But even there, you know, you you, you could make an argument that it's a limited exception. Uh, for example, within the medical profession, someone told me um, that um, the um, the highest paid surgeon in the world, you know what they actually do, or um, highest paid doctor in the world, he's an expert on anal bleaching. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so. so and you can make an easy case that, like, the cleaners in the hospital are actually more responsible for, bio, uh, for health outcomes since 80% of increase in, like, longevity and health has been owing to hygiene, you know, uh, than the doctors. Anyway, but, but um, that's all on the side. Um, I think that, that – and, and there are an overlap. You know, there are, like, bullshit jobs that are also shit jobs, which is, like, the worst possible job you could ever have. Um, but um, I think that – what we you know, if we shift things around so that people are actually doing something useful or recognized, I think that'll be the single most important thing because nobody would take a bullshit job except for any reason other than the money. And I often would actually uh, read directly uh, in these testimonies, people would say, you know, I tried to do something useful myself. I, I did it for about five years and then I couldn't pay the bills. You know, I was a preschool teacher. And uh, well, he said, pretty much all the people who do preschool teaching in, in the Boston area where she was um, do it for about four or five years until they just can't afford to do it anymore. And then they get some office job where they're really not doing anything, but they're paid three times as much. So there's something terribly wrong with our, uh, you know, our economy when that's the case. And that seems to be it. No one would take those stupid office jobs if they could still be like teachers or do something useful themselves. Yeah. Okay. And the final one was about um, uh, whether it's inevitable, I think. Whether it's inevitable, that was it. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you for keeping track of that. Um, <laughs> That's what yeah, um, whether it's inevitable. I do not think it's inevitable. I think that um, I think that this is I mean, I think there are inevitable processes in large organizations which create sort of pointless positions. And I go into the dynamics. I create a typology of bullshit jobs. That, you know, there's flunkies, there's goons. There's, 
box tickers that allow an organization to say it's doing something it doesn't want to do. There's duct tapers who are there to fix problems that only exist because the organization is stupidly organized. But once you have these people, you don't want to get rid of them because you know, because managers in, in large organizations, especially in corporations actually, their, their power, often their salaries, are based on how many people they have working under them. You know, I have a division of 4,000 people. Oh, yeah, well, I have a division of 5,000. They have no incentive to get rid of unnecessary people. Um, but, but there's nothing inevitable about this. There's a kind of a creep that will happen. But healthy organizations purge things now and then. And the question is, you know, why they don't? Why increasingly instead they, they build up unnecessary jobs because of the way the economy is set up you know, it's no longer really a capitalist economy at all, in my opinion. I call it managerial feudalism. It's all about reallocating resources. And, and, and the more, it, you know, if you're trying to allocate, if you get a huge pot of money and your job is to distribute it, well, efficiency isn't efficient. Inefficiency is efficient. Because, like, the longer you take to do it, the more of it you get to keep. <laughs> and people would say that directly, you know, in these testimonies. So, yeah, you just need to get rid of the... Uh, the, the the incentives people have not to do something about it, and, and the problem could well take care of itself. Okay, great. I've got a couple more questions, or in fact, all this. Okay, yeah. so um, just down here, Matthias oh, Popkins. We get a lot of questions. Yeah. It's long here, Matthias, and then after that, Johnny Perry. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get them in a minute. Yeah. I thought it was extremely uh, thought-provoking, uh, and I, I really liked the analysis of uh, the bullshitization of the economy and how that. Uh, might be correlated with the kind of the corporatization but as well as kind of trends of outsourcing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at one point, you kind of you, you made a comment which made me think. You, you know, when you when you said like socialism is clearly more efficient, which then made me think of my informants in uh, post-Soviet Georgia, and among them, an, an extremely popular joke uh, anecdote was, they yeah they. Yeah, we all they they, uh, they pretend to pay us, and we pretend to work, mm-hmm. right? So you know, state socialist uh, systems were not necessarily as oh, no, efficient yeah. either. So so basically, could you say something about kind of provide a more comparison or contextualization about the conditions okay, under which digitization yep. of the economy occurs? Okay, uh, Johnny, Johnny, sorry, just hand along to Johnny, please. Thank you. Yeah, I've got about halfway through the book and I'm greatly enjoying it, but there are two things that puzzle me so far. One has to do with the method of getting most of your information Mm -hmm. from people who write to you on the internet in response to your declaration about how most jobs are bullshit. Uh, surely they're self-selecting. Yeah, of course they are. Um, and uh, so the the other evidence you have is survey material, and, mm-hmm. and the survey that you keep coming back to is this YouGov poll, which says that 37% of people think their jobs are meaningless, and 33% think they're unrewarding. That means that, roughly speaking, two-thirds of people think their jobs are meaningful and rewarding. Now, that to me seems a counterintuitively high figure. So why don't you turn your problem around and say, how is it so many people are persuaded that their jobs are are so meaningful? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Secondly... (laughs) Secondly... uh, I was struck by the kind of uh, absence of, um, of comparison. I mean, is it, 
Is it the case that Protestant ethic computer programmers will feel so agonized, uh, uh, not feel more agonized than, say, Indian clerks in a government office? I mean, hasn't culture got something to do with the extent to which people classify and resent their jobs as bullshit? And your whole emphasis is on how, uh, uh, you know, the problem is, is modern-day capitalism. And, of course, we can all agree that it is a terrible problem. But aren't a lot of jobs in, not in different kinds of societies really kind of bullshit? And um, maybe quite as many on your figures would be regarded as bullshit. I mean, the, the court of Versailles presumably had rather a high proportion of people who might have regarded their jobs as bullshit. What was the example you said? What did? No, I just didn't catch the example. The who did had a high proportion? The court of Versailles, yeah. Court of Versailles. One could no, give. well, that's okay. not the definition, right. but I'll tell right. you. Okay, so um, there's one. Sorry, that mm-hmm. you don't want it anymore. All right, so just take those two because I've got a, another hordes coming okay. up. Um, okay, that's, uh, the first one is a so, uh, socialist system. Um, no, I, I, I mean, yeah. obviously, if you have a doctrine of full employment, you're going to make up dummy jobs. Um, what's interesting is that state socialism tended to create bullshit blue-collar jobs. Um, so, you know, that's why it took five people to buy a loaf of bread, one to give you the ticket, another, yeah, and so forth and so on. Um, what, I, what I would argue is, when I, I was giving the example of socialism would be more efficient, I was talking about, like, you know, every system like the NHS uh, employs far less people than the American private system um, and with you know, much more efficient outcomes. So, so that's just true. I'm not talking about a state socialist system because then you have another factor, which is a doctrine of full employment. Um, in fact, I, I, I actually describe another word for what I describe in the book is the Brezhnevization of the American you know, uh, system of, of capitalism. You know, we're going through this late stage where they're just making up dummy jobs. Um, and so I think there's a, you know, incredible parallels, actually, between these things, which are to the embarrassment of capitalism, which set itself up as a, as a system that would never do that. The difference is that in American corporations, they are ruthlessly efficient on the blue-collar workers, and they just, like, you know, completely allow fat to develop on the executive or, or any or managerial level. So, you know... Uh, in, in one way, they're like hiring all these people with dummy proletarian jobs to give them supposedly proletarian consciousness, whereas in this one, they're hiring these people with these dummy white-collar jobs, like where they're essentially paid to identify with the perspectives of management. You know? um, so they, they serve a similar political function in either case. Uh, in terms of, uh, of Johnny's objections, uh, first of all, um, I mean, the, the one about the court of... This is the questions. Well, no, they were, they were the subjections. <laughs> um, and um, uh, first of all, yes, obviously it's self-selecting. I mean, there's no, um, the, the surveys, there are several surveys have been done. Um, and, and I think, like, you know, why do people find their job? They didn't say, do you find your job meaningful? They said, does it make a meaningful contribution? Uh, which is a different thing, you know? I mean, uh, you know, basically, does it do anything? And, and uh, only 50% were sure that it did. Um, I think that that's pretty significant because let's face it: if you're a bus driver, you have no doubt that you're doing something. Um, if you you might not like your job, but but there's no doubt that people do need to move around. Um, and and similarly, you can look through. Um, 
Oh, I'm skipping ahead. So, so you know, what I thought from this was that what was really amazing is that there are so many jobs that no one would possibly say that. You might hate your job infinitely, but you don't think that it makes no meaningful contribution to anything. Um, there was one survey, which I thought was very interesting, which did come up, because there's been more than one of them. There was two at the time I wrote the book. There's been three or four since. And sometimes they ask slightly different questions. My favorite one was one in America where they asked about uh, active and, and, and passive engagement at work. Uh, only 15% of workers said they were actively engaged, like trying to do a good job. Most people were just sleepwalking. But an equal number, 15%, were actively disengaged, which meant they hated their job so much they were trying to do as bad a job as possible. Um, and, um, but, but, um, but I think that, that what's really critical here is is I mean, the self-selecting group, I mean, I wasn't using that for statistical purposes. I was using it to get a sense of what these jobs are and what people find problematic about them. Um, oh, yes, I was going to say, there was another survey which found that they said only 10% of people were absolutely sure they have bullshit jobs. Um, and I looked into that. It was in Holland, and there was like two in Holland. One said 40%, one said 10 So obviously they asked the question differently. So I looked at how they asked the question on the 10% one, and what they actually said was, um, you know, does your job make a positive contribution to the organization? So what that meant was that, um, like, something like 25% of people felt that their job was useful to the organization, but the organization itself was useless, or, or that their entire industry was useless, which is an interesting, so, you know. And, 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 and what the, the, the subjective stuff was, it's, you know, as I say, it's not being used for statistical purposes, but to say, well, you know, to put some flesh on this, like, what is, like, why do they think that? Um, and I, you know, of course I'm going to get people who agree with the basic premise, but again, the survey show that's probably a lot. Um, and um, what I really thought was interesting from the survey material, I mean, not the survey, but the, the narratives I got, which I got about 300, um, was that almost none of them were in service jobs. Because what people would imagine was like people were sitting there saying, oh, why are people buying selfie sticks? Selfie sticks are stupid. Or, you know, like, like who are these idiots spending five pounds for a cup of coffee? You know, that kind of, but nobody said that, basically. I mean, one or, I think there's one out of five, 300 who said that. Um, but but they, almost all of them were office jobs and, and managerial and clerical and, and, and supervisory. They would say, I'm supervising people who don't need to be supervised, I'm, uh, this kind of thing. And, and, and that meant to me that, like, you know, if that many people say that, pretty much anybody who's sitting there in an office who you're wondering, are they secretly thinking that their job is nonsense? They probably are, uh, which I think is, is quite significant. As for like bullshit jobs in Versailles, well, I mean, I actually usually give the example of the guy fanning the pharaoh of an ostrich feather. Um, I'm, you know, the, the key thing of this is it's a subjective measure. You know, like, it's not whether I think that they're doing bullshit, it's whether they do. And, and that's what's really interesting. I mean, the guy fanning the pharaoh of an ostrich feather is probably probably thinking he's got the most important job in the entire world. Um, whereas the guys in Versailles, no doubt too, I'm sure feudal, actual feudal retainers, you know, felt that they were doing something, we can't really know, but we're guessing they probably mostly felt that they were doing something important. What's really interesting is you have so many people in the same sort of structural position of feudal retainers who are driven crazy by it. 
That's what's happening now, which is really important and interesting to think about. Why is that, and why do they report such an incredible, miserable reaction to like this reestablishment of this kind of managerial feudalism? Um, and and. I think that this is, as I say, it's a scar across the collective soul. It's like, and this is why people sort of went crazy when I first put the thing out. This is very clear that you know, there is a social problem that no one felt that they could talk about, and suddenly there's a language by which they can. So we've come to the official end of this, but I'm going to take um, sort of leeway to just get three more questions. I know there's way more, but you're probably going to have to attack David out in the hallway. Yeah, so, I'll be um, out there, so. so one from you, one from you right at the back over there. And um, yeah, but if you have to go, that's okay. And then we're not going to physically expel us. Okay, so um, yeah, (laughs) I'll be quick. To what extent do you think that bullshit jobs are gender blind and class blind? Um, no. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And then there's one. Sorry, um, that lady at the back there. How do you see personal responsibility of the individual? to address the fact that he feels that it's a useless job. It's somewhat self-fulfilling in my experience when someone gets that in their head and they make sure it is a fairly useless activity they're doing. Um, I, I, I wonder how you feel about the, just not the societies um, addressing it, but the individual themselves getting themselves out of that situation. Mm. Okay, and okay. then, I'm sorry, I've, I've now forgotten. Uh, oh, yeah. Class, individual responsibility, yeah. Uh, hi, thank you very much. Uh, I just had a, got a question that you alluded to it as well, that about the bullshit industries. I guess the way you presented the case, um, I was wondering what are the potential political interests that are sustaining this bullshit uh, job. So mm. there are potentially industries that are benefiting from this, or there are certain people who's... Oh, yeah. People who are, yeah, they're benefiting from having these bullshit stuff. So I wonder if you can uh, expand on that as well. Okay. So we do that? Yeah. All three. All right. Gender and class. Well, I mean, yeah. One of the really interesting things is that um, the YouGov thing did break things down by gender. And I thought that was extremely revealing because uh, that was the major split. They also did, like, by political party, which tells you almost nothing, um, and all, all various other things. But uh, it was a difference between 30% women and 40% men, which I thought was amazing. So women are much less likely to report themselves being in a bullshit job. Um, I think that uh, because women are much more likely being caring professions or things where you're actually doing something, which is obviously contributing. Um, and, and I think that actually one can think that the gender pay gap, I mean, has many factors involved, but one of them might be that... Um, Women are more likely to be doing real work, and the more you're doing real work, the less you're paid. You know, um, so so in terms of class, well, obviously, I mean, um, uh, the, the the biggest story uh, I've heard about this, I, I was saying that they you know, they do do ruthless speed up and downsizing on, on the shop floor, and then they just hire these meaningless professional managerial class jobs uh, with the profits. And you know, like the, since 1975, they talk about the Keynesian bargain. You know, um, after World War II, there was a tacit, actually kind of explicit, deal between labor management and um, government that increases in productivity would be met by increases in wages. And that deal was kept until around 73, 74. Um, you see productivity and wages going up together. And then after that, wages flatline and profits, I mean, uh, and, and, and uh, productivity still keeps going up even faster. So the question is, what happened to all that 
the profits of all that increased productivity. And the usual account is that it all goes to the 1%, you know, that the investing class. That's where financialization, which starts around there, comes from. It's they're just like, you know, passing around the money they're not giving to the workers, to each other, and all these complicated scams. And that's, that's true, you know, it's partly true. But it's also true that they're just hiring these sort of dummy jobs because, um, you know, they, they, basically the professional managerial class replaces the working class, uh, Tom Frank has documented this, as a sort of stalwarts of previously left-wing political parties starting around this period. So, you know, whether it's like Blairite labor or Clintonite Democrats, they basically go for those guys. So insofar as they're throwing benefits to anybody, it's those guys who are the kind of bullshit job class. Um, and and um, I've heard very, very uh, explicit accounts of how this happens. There's this factory I was in in, fa- in in France, which is occupied by its workers, the Elephant Tea Company, um, where they described, you know, they, they kept increasing, uh, the, the, the workers kept tinkering with the machines, and the machines got more and more efficient, and productivity kept going up. But, you know, at a certain point, they stopped giving raises to the workers, and instead, of, uh, they stopped hiring new workers. Instead, they just took the profits and kept hiring more and more white-collar workers, you know? It used to be they just have the HR guy and the boss said, and suddenly there was all these guys of suits, like three, four, five, six, seven middle managers, like, you know, and somebody had a cousin who had finished business school, and they, you know, it was this sort of corporate welfare for people of a certain class. And, and these guys would just show up in their suits with little clipboards and wander around on the catwalk, sort of watching people as they worked. And again, they'd hire them, and then they'd figure out something to do, and these guys had nothing to do. So they kept, like, making up new exercises and plans, and it never worked. So finally, they said, I know, well, let's fire everybody and move the plant to Poland. Uh, and the workers went into occupation ever since. Uh, but, so that's a parable for our times. Um, okay, question two. <laughs> was, was, was which one? Um, sorry, I've actually forgotten your question. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, I... Not a passive thing and saying, I have a shit job. And here I am in my shit job. And it's self-fulfilling after a while. You know, you just don't get out of it. Yeah, I mean, these things create depression, though. I mean, if you think about it, um, I mean, I think that, you know, we can't, like, say suddenly, somehow, millions of people became complacent. You know, it's like if something happens across society then there's got to be, like, some larger structural reason. And I think that even if you look at depression, you know, people in these jobs often get just listless and depressed, and, like, they... But, but it strikes me that one reason that level... People always say that if you have a society which is, like, wealthy and consumeristic, levels of, impre- uh, uh, of depression go up. And this is often blamed on consumerism itself, which no doubt is a factor. But, and they often go up massively. I mean, I think 49% of all Americans experience clinical mental illness and, you know, overwhelmingly clinical depression. Um, and it's the same in most rich countries. Uh, but, but one reason for that, I, I think, is... You know, if you have people in jobs they feel it's completely pointless, well, you know, what is depression? It's not being sad. It's, it's, it's feeling that nothing you do makes any difference, that, you know, there's a lack of energy because you don't feel there's any point to anything. Well, if you're in a job like this, 
That's actually literally true. Your day-to-day -day experience has been designed to mimic depression. So it's hardly surprising people get depressed. Um, so it, you, know, you can't completely blame them you know, for, for reacting to this overwhelmingly depressive environment. And, and um, I mean, I think people try to rebel in individual ways all the time. In fact, I, this is a, 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 I'll throw in because I think it's relevant. Um, I think the forms of rebellion mimic what you can do in certain environments. I was thinking about this the other day, that like almost all the forms of social rebellion uh, that you have in the 60s, right, uh, 50s and 60s, are all things that take a lot of time. You know, you think about beat poetry, it just goes on forever. Uh, the 15-minute drum, drum solo. You know, LSD, it takes, you need at least eight hours to do LSD. Um, you know, you can't do that while you're on the job. And, um, you know, but, but on the other hand, like, what do they have now? We have cat memes, we have YouTube rants, we have, like, you know, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter wars, you know, things like this. They're all things you can do while you're pretending to do something else. <laughs> you know, so basically you design these subversive forms you can do while you're pretending to work. So I think that is true, that people who have these jobs do fight back, but they're fighting back within very specific constraints. Okay, and the final question was about sort of who, who's behind all of this? Oh, well, nobody did. I mean, I think, as I say, uh, I mean, you've got to ask, you know, qui bono, as, they, the, the, uh, as the Romans always said, who's actually benefiting from this. But who's benefiting from this doesn't necessarily mean there's somebody sitting in a room. I mean, I think we shouldn't underestimate simple outright conspiracy because it does happen, right? I mean, like, what is the G8? It's like pe powerful people sitting around saying, what are, how are we going to run the world economy? You know, so it's not like there's a secret cabal. There's a totally public cabal. Um, but, um, and they do discuss stuff like this. And people like Obama do say, well, we can't do, create a more efficient system because it'll create unemployment. And, you know, like, like so these things are matters of public debate among, among people running things. But I think that, like, the real question is, is who is actually, is why they don't do anything about it. And this is the question that I really wanted to ask in the book, is, like, if you have millions of people Going to work every day feeling like my job is totally pointless, I'm not actually doing anything, I'm, I'm literally doing nothing. Why are we not discussing this as a social problem? I mean, how did it happen that it took some stupid article in Strike Magazine, which nobody ever reads, um, I mean, you know, like, like that, that, that anybody talked about it at all? It's just weird. And, um, and that's the question I'm trying to answer. And it's because, like, we have this moralism that work is good, and more work is always good. And, you know, the last thing you'd see is, like, some moralistic think piece in Salon or, like, somebody writing an article for, for, for the Telegraph saying, people are just working too much. We need to cut it down. People should work less. You know, no, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> um, you know, more, whatever there's a social problem, the first instinct, well, we need to work more. Yeah, everybody always, you know, work, it's like these guys are the preachers of our day and they're always telling us to work. Um, so, so we need to understand why it is that, yes, uh, you know, A, people in power do think, well, fine, it keeps them busy, keeps them off the streets. Um, and I think that, that this is true. There was like, there, 
there is a very self-conscious paranoia going on in, in, in ruling circles. I always talk about technology this way. In the early 70s, there was a huge freak out, and it was quite public, some of it, about like too rapid technological change is, is going like, to is, is responsible for all the social unrest of the 60s. And, and part of it was people just have too much time on their hands. Um, and and the, both the yippies and the situationists, all the radicals are saying, yes, let the machines do all the work. Soon we'll have like total robotization. And, and, and the ruling class, people were really saying, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen when the robots take over and the entire working class turns into hippies? Oh, my God, it's going to be a disaster. You know? So there was a sense we need to move away from technologies that are going to, like, um, give people too much leisure time. It was very self-conscious. But, you know, also this stuff happens because of internal processes that are just allowed to run amok. And to look at that, we have to look at a combination of there's no political interest in, in stopping the problem, there is a political pressure to create more jobs, and there is a moralism which says that work is good. And, if you, if, and, and people really do seem to believe that if you're not working harder than you, you'd like to work at something you don't enjoy preferably for a person you don't like, um, then you're just a bad person and don't deserve anything. You, know, you should not be loved by your community. And I think we need to attack that at the root. And, and that's why I think something like basic income is really important. Because it tells you, like, no, you don't have to prove it yourself. If you're a human, you deserve the means to live. Now go off and, like, now that we've said we trust you to, to exist, go off and say how you want to help us. Great. Well, thank you very much for raising all these important questions and at least making us start to think of the answers. So thanks very much, David. And thanks, Lydia. Well, we went a bit over time.